Uh, welcome back to another edition of Safety Talks, and we've got Carrie Ustry with us and Jim Loud, and we're going to have a phenomenal conversation. We're going to be looking at how can we get um, collaboration built in our work environments with our workers. If you haven't signed up yet, our Safety Connect Virtual Conference Expo is happening October 2020. You can register at industryconnectsafety.com. Here's a little fact, we're actually giving out door prizes. So get on over and register now and you could have a chance to win. So now let's get into that discussion. Welcome both of you. Thank you, Thank you. for having us. Good to be here. Now, when we were off air in our planning discussion, we had some really good conversations going around um, between the three of us. And one of the things that we were looking at is how can we be um, moving forward in creating more of a, a collaboration um, within our work environments to help build out a safer um, environment for our workers and management to be working on. And so I wanted to kind of break that open. And Carrie, can you start that off with us? What you were thinking? Sure. About? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I think management, if you look at management, and if you ask any manager, uh, they want a safe work environment, right? Uh, I don't know of any that say, no, I don't, right? They certainly have other pressures, certainly production pressures and schedule pressures and, and different things like that. Um, but I don't know of any of them that say, uh, no, I don't care what happens to my employees. Uh, however, uh, having a process in place to do that specifically uh, can sometimes elude uh, uh, both managers and organizations. Um, so a lot of times you'd lay out the groundwork is, you know, here's all these policies, here's all these procedures, here's, you know, if you do these things, it'll keep us safe. And then when something bad happens, then it's like it's because you, the worker, didn't necessarily do something safe. So it's easy to go because we relied on that framework, right, those policies, those procedures, uh, to make sure they're being followed. We assumed they were being followed, right? And then when something bad happens, then we automatically go to the employee didn't follow those rules because the expectation and the thought was we'd been doing it that way all along. So when you talk uh, management specifically is getting the insight into the difference between uh, work as imagined and work as performed. And what I mean by that is um, if I sit in my office and think everything's following, you know, 100% according to plan, uh, then uh, that's somewhat delusional, right? Um, we, uh, we are, as humans, we are very prone to error. We should expect error. Uh, systems are extremely complex, um, and they tend to go off the rails. Even in successful production, even in successful work, they're not going 100% according to plan. And there's all these latent errors uh, that are continually just probing and trying to disrupt the work. Everything from you know people's you know not being restful and uh, people that are new to their environment or people that get complacent or, you know, you know, then you introduce the mechanical or technical aspects of it and things, you know, break and things, you know, start to deteriorate and, you know, we make changes. So part of it is just going and uh, looking at workers as part of the solution, right? Not part of the problem. Uh, and when they do go to engage managers, when they do go to engage, it should be to understand more of how are you coping on a daily basis? 
right? What are you doing? How are you doing things differently if it is different than plan? Uh, how did we get to this point? Uh, are there better ways? And it's really, we should be asking probing questions that do really two things. One is, uh, I want to better understand the work because I'm not the one doing it. And number two is, um, uh, uh, are you safe or, or can I at least express my concern for you, right? And can we make it better collaboratively? Because uh, I'm assuming that it's working, but there might be something very simple uh, or complex that you see that I don't, that we could talk about and say, hey, if we did this, not only would it make it safer, but it could also increase production or, or, or what have you. So that's kind of how I see it. And a lot of times we tend to just go into fault finding mode, right? We go up, we look at conditions, we come up, we look at behaviors. But what we don't do is look at it, you know, as a system uh, and kind of look at work as a system as opposed to a collection of behaviors or a collection of conditions. Does that make sense? Okay. to me. Uh, Perfect. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, you talked about, uh, you know, an we have an accident and then we start blaming people. <laughs> uh, and often when you look at that a little deeper, those accidents, you find out that's been set up to fail for years and we did not know it. This is so often true uh, in major uh, incidents and fatalities. And it's frankly, there's no excuse for that. And one of the reasons this happens is because we're not close enough to the workers doing the work to understand what their problems are, to understand what their work is, mm -hmm. uh, and look at it with them to partner to make it better. Not just safer, but better, you know, more Absolutely. efficient yep. as well. Uh, today, it was interesting. I've read these, uh, I hadn't read one recently, but Gallup started doing a worker engagement poll Mm. Uh, 18 years ago and just this morning I saw the uh, latest one and, and the figures are from 2018 34% of the workforce in the US believes they are engaged or tells us that they're engaged in their work you know that means that two-thirds of the workers in this country are not engaged in their work uh, that is a waste of talent and a waste of information and ideas that employees can give us. But you mentioned uh, workers as problems rather than solutions. And that is the problem because we've looked at workers as their unsafe acts and so forth as problems rather than getting working with them to understand why are there unsafe acts? You know, what, what is it that we're not doing that we should to make this safer? And how can I work with you humbly and with respect for what you do? Because you know what you do better than I do. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we get down to that level with, with the workers, uh, not only to better understand the work, but to partner with them to make the work safer, better, faster, cheaper for that matter. And we're Absolutely. not a big waste. Now, one of the, um, the thoughts that you brought forward is humble, you know, and that was something that uh, we had discussed before, humble learning model. And I'd mm -hmm. really like it if you could share that with our audience, because I think it's very important, especially since we're at a pivotal time where leadership can change style right now. 
Well, I'll, I'll kick that off because uh, it's, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine how often organizations treat their workers like children and then expect them to act like adults. And I think safety is especially prone uh, to that. Uh, we need more adult-to-adult -adult relationships, more respect, more humility, more willingness to actively listen rather than to preach and uh, do the typical pedantic things that we call coaching sometimes. Uh, frankly, a lot of that is just patronizing mm -hmm. to the workforce. They'd like to see us, and I, and I don't mean just safety people, I really mean the organization and organization management, uh, maybe more importantly, uh, to get out from behind their desks, get out with the people that are doing the work that makes their business possible understand it better and work with the people doing it uh, to make it safer. Absolutely. That without respect and uh, humility. Absolutely. And one of the things that, um, that we, we hear and we want to promote more often is you do uh, safety uh, uh, with your employees, not to your employees. So I kind of want to talk about that. Uh, it is a kind of pivot from, or, or is a supplement to, to the humble model. So what I mean by that is, so instead of as you approach um, and look for, hey, uh, Jim's not doing X, Y, and Z from a behavioral standpoint, or we see condition X, Y, and Z uh, is unsafe, and then we go right into uh, find and fix mode, right? Uh, so instead of that, um, the, the humble approach is to come up on the work and you seek to understand. Right. And that is, you know, what what can you walk me through the work that you're doing? Right. Uh, how can it hurt you? Right. Uh, do you know anybody who've got who's gotten hurt? And then you go into um, are there better ways that we can do it? Right. Are there uh, efficiencies that you've seen or you think we could do that we're not doing because we said thou shall do this procedure this way? Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, we, we don't always get the best input uh, when we build these policies and procedures. The people closest to the work don't always get them done. And they're not always uh, kept up to date, right? So every day things are changing. Uh, and you should be able to have the adaptive capability at the worker level to be able to say, hey, this has changed. Let's change and, and pivot and do it this way um, and, and get that empowerment and that encouragement. Right, as opposed to right, uh, the whack-a-mole. You come up and you whack people, and you say, "Do it this way," right, and then you leave. Right, I call them the seagulls. Right, they fly, they uh, they fly in squawking, they crap on you, and then they fly away. Right, that that model has to go away, mm -hmm. um, whether it's safety or management. Right, um, and again, we talk safety specifically, um, but th this is uh, you know whether it pertains to work, right, whether it pertains to operations and production whether it pertains to safety and what have you. Um, so again, the humble approach is to ask those open-ended questions, right? To, to express my interest in your work and my interest in your, or your, my concern for your well-being. Uh, and that to me is a, a humble approach, right? And I'm, I'm not saying don't do those observations. I'm not saying don't go look for the conditions uh, and the behaviors and give that feedback. I'm saying that management walkthrough and that management coaching and co or that management conversation uh, is different than than going through and finding, hey, is this ladder in good shape or is this forklift in good shape or is the housekeeping in good shape? Those things still need to continue 
but it needs to be separated from the management conversation, which is that humble approach and that humble conversation. Jim, right. do you agree? Yeah, yeah it, it does really three things, and all of them are good. Mm -hmm. uh, it shows the workers that you're interested in what they're doing, and you should be. Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> and it can show that you're interested in the workers, too. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's relationship building. That's terribly important. Uh, and it shows you're interested in safety and you can't expect your workers to work uh, more safely than you demonstrate. Oh, yes. You expect them to. And it's one way to do that. Uh, but it's not heavy handed and it's very difficult to do what we're talking about, by the way, in your typical and traditional command and control. Management. Totally agreed. Very and, let, let me take off on that, Jim, which is, uh, error should be expected, right? And what I mean by that is, take for example, uh, the last time you went out and drove anywhere, I don't care if it's at the grocery store or on a trip or what have you, and just think in your head and count in your head from the time you walked out your door till the time you got back from your destination, how many times uh, was there, how many times was there some kind of error, right? Uh, that human error, or even conditions, right, where your where your tires not inflated. Did you do a 360 walk around of your vehicle, right? Did you check the brakes? Did you check the the lights? Um, and then you're talking. How many times did you were you distracted? Did you look at your phone, right? Did you uh, t play with the radio? Did you speed? Did you do any of those things? Now, the only reason I'm saying that is because uh, I I um I want to talk about the context. Uh, of, um, I want to talk about the context of error is normal, right? So think about that, just that simple drive to the grocery store and back, right? Now we're talking pandemic, which is, did you wear your mask? Did you wear it correctly? Did you scratch your face? Did you do any of those things, right? So now we, I can count on it. I'd run out of fingers, right? How many times that I had some kind of error likely situation or, uh, something that I, that, probably I shouldn't have done that I did, okay? And that's just a simple task. Now you're putting workers into a complex task within a work environment, and you're saying, as soon as you cross the threshold of my organization, all of that error, proneness to error, must stop 100%. And that is just extremely unrealistic, right? It is extremely un unrealistic. We are not machines, right? We are fallible human beings. So we need to, one, expect error as normal, and two, we need to build systems that are capable of absorbing that error, right? Because we should be able to operate with some error and not kill people or hurt people seriously, okay? I'm not saying we're going to eliminate risk, right? The, the, to me, you're not eliminating risk 100%. Uh, and we have to know that we operate with risk, right? Just driving, again, my driving to the grocery store and back, there's a there's tremendous risk, right? I could get hit by somebody else, right? There's the weather, there's the pandemic and everything else like that. And um, we do those, uh, you know, risk reward type of uh, decisions daily, right? On multiple times a day. And your your workers are really doing it as well. And you'd be shocked. No, you shouldn't be shocked right? Uh, you shouldn't be surprised that they're doing that with some kind of error built into the system. And that is good. That is okay, right? You want a robust, somewhat uh, redundant system, right? To be able to absorb those errors. 
So don't be surprised when they happen, right? Seek again to understand of, hey, this did happen. Things did align. Things did not go right. But are they happening in successful work as well? And can we look at what's causing these things and seeing if we can make our system a little more robust, uh, a little more resilient, right? A little more capable of absorbing these errors, right? And if we do it that way, that's, that's back to that humble approach of, I'm not expecting you to be a super person, right? To walk in and have zero error, right? I'm expecting you to be a fallible human being, right? And I know we're going to make mistakes, right? And let's address them as they come, but let's address them together as opposed to, you know, scolding. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're talking about as well. Yeah, you talked earlier about uh, work as imagined versus work as is done. And one of the reasons you want to collaborate with your employees is to get a better feeling of how work is actually being done. So often we make it static. You know, here's the work, here are the rules for the work, and I'm going back to my office, and I assume everybody's going to follow the rules. Well, that is a dumb, frankly, assumption, because that's never true. There's always drift. And if you don't get out there and look for it, you won't know, and then you'll be surprised, you know, when the big hit happens. Oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I told them what to do. Uh, But the environment changes. Workplaces, especially these days, are more dynamic than they've ever been. And they keep changing. And that's why it's so important, in my view, to keep the people who are actually doing the work, helping you adjust to those changes in environment, complexity, and those things that come up that you'll never know about if you're just behind your desk all day. Uh, you know, you got to get out and talk to those people and make an environment where they're willing to talk to you even when you're not there. Hey, we've come up with this problem. Uh, we need some help here. And you are just so happy to do that because you understand how important that collaboration is uh, to keep things safe, to keep your productivity up, to keep your relationship with your employees. You don't want them in that uh, 66% that isn't engaged. You want engaged workers uh, helping to make you do the work, get the work done as safely as possible and as efficiently as possible. And you can't do that. It's not static. You've got to know. It's a due diligence thing. You know, for high hazard uh, operations, you know, it's not good enough like uh, British, British Petroleum did after the Deepwater Horizon. So we had no idea. Well, it had been screwed up for years. Come on. Uh, and anyway, it cost them tens of billions of dollars and, and almost wrecked the company uh, to make that right. <clears throat> so anyway, there's a lot of reasons <laughs> for collaboration, and they go beyond safety. Uh, they're good for your business. And if we can ever get management and organizations to understand that, we're going to get to a much better place in safety as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, oh, I, I was just going to chime in here and, and add that, you know, when I'm reflecting back on my years of employment in the front line and, and doing those roles, one of the frustrations and my pet peeve that often occurs from management is the phrase, you're paid to work, not think. Hmm. That's inherently dangerous, right? <clears throat> Uh, that So that is, uh, Jim referred to it earlier, that's the command and control, right? 
So the command and control uh, management style has been around for a very long time, right? And it's still around. It's still prevalent, right? Which is, you know, thou shall do what I ask you to do and do not deviate. So that when I do leave, I expect everything to be going boom, 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 right? With no deviation, right? Master and servant. Exactly. So when you have that type of mentality, it's also easier when things do go wrong, just to, it's easy, right? To go to that, you know, people call it a root cause. Well, the sole proximate cause is the human's interaction within the system, right? The human interacts with the system and something bad happens, right? But the human also interacts with the system when everything's going right as well. So you can't have it to where you're, they're adjusting, right? And and accommodating that risk 99% of the time. And then you come out of your, the woodwork, right? When something bad happens and beat them up over it, right? Because all that does is creates that mistrust, right? And it also says, you don't know what's going on on the front lines, right? And you don't want to hear what's going on on the front lines. And now we're going to work and put basically all of that knowledge, all of those insights, all those weak signals that something bad's going to happen. They go underground, right? You might as well be the ostrich with your head buried in the sand, right? For the amount of insight you're going to get for what's really going on on the floor. And again, this is busy managing this company to know what's going on. That's pretty (laughs) much what they're saying. That's exactly what they're saying. And you're going to get bit by not just safety here. You're going to get bit by quality. You're going to get bit by productivity, right? Because morale is going to go down. You're going to get bit by everything that management is supposed to be trying to to handle. And this also goes back to the difference between the leadership model, right? Especially the servant leader, right? And the management style, right? So if you look at the difference between leadership and management, uh, and we use the term management more than we do leadership when it comes to safety. Safety management systems, SMS, is a big foundational piece for all of your, you know, uh, ANSI Z10s and the uh, ISO 45000 and everything like that. So uh, we have to build the leadership components into it, right, uh, to, to listen more, to understand more, um, and to um, not blame, right, when things go wrong, but to, to work together collaboratively. And it goes back to what you were saying before is that hard fact, we have adults in the workplace. Mm -hmm. We hire adults. So I want to go back to what you were discussing before. It was called the feedback loop Mm -hmm. concept. I think that's correct. And there really needs to be some overhaul in really getting both supervisors and management to have a better understanding about what the worker is going through, what they need and have those candid conversations, adult to adult. And I wanted you to open that up and, and share a little bit about what is this feedback loop concept that you were discussing before. Jim, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Excuse me. Uh, Actually, I see there's two, there's many in any system there's should be a lot of feedback loops Uh, in the sense of collaborating with your employees. It's very important that you have a feedback loop to when you go out there, look, listen, learn, understand, and improve those things that you uh, together with your workers decided that we need to change, do actions, 
you need to make sure that those happen. And you need to make sure that that feedback gets back in a timely manner uh, to the workers. Uh, if that, that's the surest way to kill these uh, worker manager, worker safety person interactions is to at least give the perception that you blew off what you determined was necessary and important to do with the workers. And it happens all the time. Sometimes it's deliberate, uh, just don't want to mess with it. Other times it's we have no system in place, no feedback system, corrective action management system uh, to make sure those things get tracked and have dates and people are assigned to them. And there's a feedback from that feedback loop that goes back to their employees. The other feedback loop is a plan, do, check, act. In, in the check system of any decently managed organization should be operating in some sort of plan, do, check, act arrangement. And often, especially in safety, the check part is missing. All we have are some numbers. How many accidents do we have? And often our check on safety doesn't go any further than that. Doesn't uh, get into what the employees are telling us uh, and what, how the system is reacting in the field, but you know, in reality, and work is done rather than work as imagined. And if you don't have that kind of feedback from your workers, from actual observations of the work, you have a very incomplete plan, do, check, act system, which I have called plan, do, hope, pray. And that's not a very effective strategy for safety or for anything else. Right. Yeah. So let me expand on that. Right. So specifically to safety, the, the, the biggest thing that we've looked at is um, to measure safety has been injuries. Right. Have people gotten hurt? So let's take a look at that. You know, uh, why do we do it? Right. Well, OSHA, right, back years ago, decades ago, right, said, thou shalt track your injuries. Here's the injury rates. Here's what a recordable is. You know, here's what a work-related injury is. And here are the metrics. So now everybody, every company, tracks these and compares themselves to these. Right. But because it became the benchmark, right, it became everything, right, to everybody. When you ask, is your company safe? Everybody says, well, my, my incident rate is this or my incident rate is that. But let's talk about that, right? Can I work on safely, right, and still have no injuries? I think the answer you know is yes, right? I can work very unsafely and still have no injuries. So if we operate unsafely repeatedly, right, for a long period of time uh, and not have an injury, it just reinforces that I'm still safe because I have no injuries. That's how we measure safety. But I'm still operating unsafely. So it kind of that drift that, that Jim was talking about, right? I'm getting further away from what I'm supposed to be doing to, to prevent injuries, right? To, to uh, operate with less risk. Uh, but I got away with it for so long that it becomes the new norm. Uh, but then when an injury happens, I'm surprised, right? Oh, my God, I've operated so long for, you know, doing it this way. Why, why all of a sudden an injury? And then I put these corrective actions in place, right? And that'll stop me from having another injury. And interestingly enough, I've been operating all this time unsafely, just happen to have an injury, and I operate a long time unsafely and have no other injury. So it's reinforcing to management that, hey, when we did these quick corrective actions, it solved everything. And that's not really what happened. So companies get really confused when they have repeated injuries and they're like, 
why is this happening? This never happened before. So what we have to understand best is uh, how do we do work normally, right? And what is our tolerance for risk? That's really what we should be talking about, right? Because we have different tolerances for risk, right? If your manager goes up to you and says, I don't care how you get it done, just get it done. What he's really saying to you is, I only care about the production. I don't care about the safety aspect of it, right? If you need to deviate from that, then I'm basically giving you carte blanche to do that. But if an injury happens, obviously, he's going to say, you shouldn't have done that. Um, so we give a lot of mixed messages you know, in that feedback loop normally because we're sending mixed messages. And what I think what Jim was saying earlier and what I want to reinforce is we have to be honest with each other, right? We are going to operate with some level of risk. We have to collectively say, is this acceptable risk or should, is there some way better we can do it, right, to protect you and to protect, you know, the equipment or what have you. Um, if we aren't having those conversations, right, then we're in for a world, world of hurt, right, both from a physical aspect and from a relationships standpoint of, you know, if you keep putting us at risk and you keep telling us to do that, then I'm going to start to think that you don't care about me. Uh, and then I'm going to, you know, lose morale and, and decrease production and so on and so forth. So I, I think we really have to to look at it on how we measure safety, right? And to me, how we measure safety is is that relationship that you have between management and supervisor. The better the relationship that you have, the better you converse, you know, collaboratively and not, you know, me to you from that master servant. Uh, the more we have these feedback loops where you're telling me things that could potentially go wrong so I can manage and I can say, hey, there is risk here. Is this an acceptable level of risk? Yes or no. Uh, and then let's, are we okay to continue doing it this way or should we shut it down or should we do it this way? Right. That to me is what safety should be. Uh, and whether that's me with a safety person or me with my supervisor from operations. Uh, it should be that type of conversation, right? Absolutely. If you don't have those relationships, you won't get the feedback you need mm -hmm. from your workers. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that in itself is a good uh, leading indicator, by the way, how much feedback, how many issues are being identified by the people doing the work? Are, are all of our issues being identified by the safety staff or by outside mm -hmm. auditors? or something, you've got a problem if you're not getting most, the bulk of your feedback and improvement opportunities from the people in the field. And you will not get it unless they trust you uh, to not only act on it, but trust that you actually care about it, care about them, care about the work, uh, and are willing to do something about it. So Absolutely. Let me give you, you know, like, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, you, you were bringing up OSHA, the Occupational um, Health and Safety Administration is mm -hmm. what you're referring to when you say OSHA. Correct. In the States. And that a lot of people really lean into that fully about why they're using something. Mm -hmm. And I think it needs to be pointed out that OSHA is 40 years old. <laughs> Okay, it started back in 1970s mm -hmm. in Nixon. Am I not correct? 50 years was, old. Yeah, 1970 uh, is the date, and that makes it 50 years old. Oh, okay. 
Thank you. But yes, I'm good for correction. And and so their whole and I, I mean, I'm not American, so I'm just going off the OSHA site. Um, but they said that the whole like kind of me measuring uh, rates of uh, reporting serious workplace accidents started in 2009. Is that sound about right to you guys? Uh, as far as fatalities, yes, they had they had measured the injury rates a lot longer, but they had started to look at fatalities. Um, that sounds about right. Uh, I know we did a, a paper on that recently, Jim. I, I don't know how far that goes back. Um, but my, my point being is that sometimes you have to kind of look at something and think, is that up with the times that we're in now? Because a lot of people say criticism that OSHA isn't really um, as modern as how uh, we're doing our workforce now. Like um, they're just talking about leading indicators now, mm -hmm. right? Where Jim, you two have been talking about leading indicators for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you know OSHA violations are are, are not a, a good one. You know OSHA is a collection of things. It's a collection of ANSI standards that were made law. Everything from the design of toilet seats uh, to uh, air purity standards in spray booths and so on. You know, I'm not saying those things weren't well. Maybe not the toilet seats, but. Uh, you know, a lot of that stuff was important, and it frankly made a lot of, of bad actor companies conform more to those standards. But those standards dealt almost entirely with things. There's right. very little notion that deals with people right. at all. And basically, you know, you can fix all those things and have, a, you know, an environment that's reasonably safe uh, from hazards but you haven't done much for safety unless you've got the human element covered. OSHA does not do that. And, and that's, that's what I was trying to bring forward is that you yourself have to kind of reflect and think what part of that is valuable for you to be using and then what new information, new theories are out there that could help move that needle push you forward. And so, and one of the things that we were talking about before is, you know, learning the driving reason a person has chosen the way they are performing the job. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'd really like you to kind of drill down on because I think that's so important in understanding the people behind doing the job. Sure. Um, I'll take a stab, Jim, to start on that is, um, uh, surprisingly or not, uh, people want to do the right thing, right? They are hired to do a job. They want to do it to the best of their ability. Uh, humans are extremely adaptive. And what I mean by that is uh, they will find a way to get it done. Um, and they're innovative. They will find a way to get it done sometimes uh, with, well, why take 10 steps when I can take five? Um, and that's not a bad thing, right? We, we, actually hire people, uh, despite what we talked about earlier, we hire people to think uh, and to get the job done. And sometimes, interestingly enough, uh, in incident investigations, you're actually finding out that they're like, well, I just wanted to get the job done, right? I would only be out here for a second or I would only do that. Or, hey, you know, uh, they wanted me to fix this window in order, you know, it, I know it only take me a few minutes, but in order to do it safely, we'd have to erect this scaffolding and it would be extremely expensive 
And if I suggested that to my supervisor, I know he would have fired me. You might even, you know, have the workers talk to the supervisor to see if that's even true, right? Because you don't know. But they say, hey, I can just go out here, do it real quick, not have to worry about building the scaffolding. Boom, we can get on to our next job. So I think having those conversations of, of what risk is acceptable and what risk is not, right, it needs to happen in those conversations with the employees, right? And if we're encouraging our employees to be um, uh, basically risk takers, uh, then we certainly shouldn't be surprised when, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's that, that, that gamble that, you know, the higher the risk, you know, uh, the, the more likely you are to have an injury. Uh, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. Uh, when the system fails the worker, uh, that we put them in, that we, we knew there were, there were gaps in the, the safety provisions, or we knew we were taking some shortcuts, right, in order to get that reward. So I, I think part of it is certainly that. So, Jim, you want to expand on that? Yeah, well, workers don't choose to do things unsafely. They choose to do things the way they think they would be expected to do in the organization that they work for. Uh, they expect that you wouldn't go get a scaffold. Many organizations would go to that trouble, take that time for such a simple thing, probably be okay. Uh, you have to have a really strong culture with a lot of discipline. Uh, and there are some examples of uh, high performing organizations, nuclear uh, plants, uh, aircraft carriers, and so forth that, that have that kind of discipline. But they also have great involvement by employees. You know, there's an expectation that you're going to do that work safely, regardless of what it takes. But you're in charge of how that gets done. You have control over that. Those procedures that often don't work in the real world, you've developed them. Employees got together and worked on those procedures because they understand the work and the hazards of the work better than anybody. And then they have buy-in and ownership of how they get that work done. Uh, you know, all the, the standards now, uh, 45001, uh, ANSI Z10, uh, VPP, even all oh, worker engagement, that's so important. And as I, I mentioned when we started off, well, Gallup tells us only 34% of workers are engaged so we got a lot of work to do there but we we're wasting these resources by not getting them involved in everything from procedure writing uh to determining what ppe is necessary and the best things there's so many things uh you can get employees involved in we had a lot of luck talking about feedback with having an employee committee that looked at all corrective actions when i our, our problem reports that came up all right, what do we need to do about this? Maybe we can't do anything. We get that feedback back to the uh, worker that uh, submitted it. Mm -hmm. And that works better than the safety person or some manager say, oh, we decided not to do it. You know, this is a jury of your peers saying, no, maybe this, maybe this really isn't practical. Uh, but it, we got great involvement from employee groups like that. You can put an employee group on damn near any problem you have and you'll get good results out of it. You'll get engagement, you'll get buy-in, uh, you'll get relationships built, uh, but we don't, we're not willing to give up that control. And that's not just a management problem, it's a safety profession problem as well. And I, but I, I think in order for that to occur, 
there has to be an environment that empowers the workers. Certainly. Yeah, that's what it's all about. It is about empowering the workers. If you're not willing to do that, yeah, none of that's going to work or happen. And, you know, what I notice when I'm talking to people is that often environments that are high risk, um, the employees do have an opportunity to be more engaged mm -hmm. in stuff. Whereas, for example, retail, where I come from, there is no engagement with the employees. It's descended down from mm -hmm. head office. And so then the employees look back at something that's given to them and they're like, this person has no clue what they're talking about. Throw that in the trash can. And so what I, I want to kind of bring forward the conversation is how can safety professionals understand what their employees are doing better? Because I think that needs to be really cracked open that not everybody works in a high risk, you know, um, environment of aerospace. A lot of people in the world, we work in, I guess you would call it low risk environments. So how can we help those safety managers, you know, use this philosophy? So let's look at that, right? So when the safety kind of industry started, right, it was people who uh, learned the OSHA uh, regulations um, by heart, right? And they could recite it, um, uh, you know, by standard uh, and boom, 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 this is what it means. Uh, but as Jim's pointed out, uh, most of it dealt with just conditions, right? And then there was a shift, um, what was it, in the 80s, uh, Jim, for behavior-based safety? Yeah, right? Late 70s. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, yeah. Uh, and kind of started looking at behavior-based safety. But even that, to me, uh, just like we look at conditions kind of in a in an isolation, then we started to look at a human behavior or behaviors in isolation, right? Uh, and born out of the high risk industry was human performance, right? Or human and organizational performance that you hear hop a lot lately. And a lot of the principles came out of that is because we have zero room for error, right? It came out of the nuclear industry, right? And it basically said, we need to rely on the experts who could be the guy, the lowest guy in the totem pole, who knows exactly where things are and what needs to happen. And we need to rely on his expertise when the chips are down, right? So we have to, even the CEO needs to listen to that person who's the expert in the room uh, and be humble about it, right? And we have to expect error, right? We have to react, right, to in order to get more information, not less information, right? So we can't shoot the messenger when we hear bad news. Um, uh, so those things need to be in place, right? So that we can have that structure uh, in order for employees to succeed. So does that make sense? Yes. Uh, we yeah, won't get there unless we give the employees a chance to tell us what reality is mm -hmm. and how we can make reality better uh, and yeah. cer certainly safer. So we have to solicit that input from the employees, ask those questions, go out, get out from behind your desk. Safety people need to do this too, but they also need to understand that it's an organizational challenge. It's not something they can do by themselves. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we really need managers out there doing this as well. Uh, many managers, I'm anxious to hear your input on this, really seem, this has been my experience in the field, and I haven't been in the field in, in a number of years now, but 
uh, aren't comfortable talking to their own employees. I've never gotten that. Yeah. I was a manager, had up to several hundred employees. I love talking to them. So I guess I don't fully understand why so many people seem to have a problem getting out and interacting uh, with their workers. And it's a shame because so much depends on that. And that just doesn't happen very often. Well, Do you let's, think um, that, oh, so go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on that, Jim. What I see more often too is uh, safety kind of takes a backseat to the things that I know I have to talk about. I know I have to go back tomorrow and talk about production. I know I have to go back and talk about schedule. I know I have to go back and talk to my boss about, you know, these other operational things. And safety tends to take a backseat to as long as nobody got hurt, then we can talk about these other operational things. So I think and you said it in your earlier articles on the management walkthroughs, walkarounds, is you have to carve out this component that says, I need to go and specifically talk safety and spend those few minutes to look at safety uh, as, as a component of the work. So if you're not doing that, then it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. So even if I am talking to you and getting feedback on how do we increase production? How do we, you know, get, you know, 10 widgets done instead of nine? How do we, you know, do it on time and under budget and, you know, on schedule and blah, 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 blah. But safety is, tends to be a forgotten aspect of it, right? Um, so I think that uh, you need to carve out the time to have the co the safety conversation. Yeah, that's proactive, Terry. Yeah. And yeah, we're not good at the, no one is management uh, isn't either. And I, I know how that is. You've got a plate. You've got more than you can do in a 10 hour day. Yeah. So how do we add something to that? And, and what I've always told managers is I bet if I looked at your plate, I could find a bunch of things that aren't nearly as productive as going out and spending an hour a week, mm -hmm. a 50 hour a week or 60 hour a week, talking to your employees, getting a sense of reality building those relationships, you know, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I never said it out loud is, you know, if you're not serious about safety, if you haven't got an hour a week or two hours a week uh, to go out and interact with your employees and see what reality looks like on the floor and how we might make that reality a safer one. Right. And I have to wonder and put this in there. Um, is there some type of, is there some classism going on? that I as an executive, you know, it's not really my role to talk with the employees. That's their supervisor's no. role because I'll be blunt with you. I have seen it so many times when I was in the store, the corporate health and safety person would come in with their checklist, come into the department, not bother wearing any of the required mm. food safety PPE, come in, touch things, check it off, not talk to one employee and leave. Now, that's the seagull. They could have done that differently. It's your seagull. They could have chosen <laughs> to do that differently when they were there. And then the, when they're leaving, you know what the employee's reaction is? I bet you know. And, oh, it's yeah. not favorable. I can tell you that. That's right. It's not favorable. And, and so why would they give any feedback to that person? Why would the employees make an effort to try to engage with this individual that came from corporate head office 
to just kind of seagull down, fly down, go through, and leave. A, a great example is the Deepwater Horizon, mm -hmm. where they had big wigs from Transocean and BP mm -hmm. on the platform the day it blew up. They were having a safety celebration because their numbers told them they were really safe. Mm -hmm. uh, they were doing what they called management visibility tours. So management would be seen and they're checking things like slips, trips and fall hazards. And when uh, body belts were uh, last uh, inspected and so forth, frankly, not what I want my top managers to be spending their time Agreed. with. Agreed, yeah. Their interaction with the people on the platform was limited to, how's it going? Everything going? Meanwhile, meanwhile, down in the bowels of the platform, they've got a cement job, a well capping operation that was going way south. This is safety critical work. They didn't even check on it. Yeah. They didn't want to be in the way. And by the way, that's, that's worth considering. You don't want to get in the way uh, of safety critical work. You want to understand it without getting in the way, without unduly impacting how, it, how it's performed. That's a valid concern. But they had never done that. Uh, all they ever did was look at conditions and stuff and make themselves seen. And frankly, that's probably better than nothing. Mm -hmm. But God, what an incredible missed opportunity uh, yeah. that was. And it's very typical. People trying to do the right thing. They think they're safe. Give them a award. Have a pizza party. Uh, but not really know uh, what's going on uh, in the most important aspects of their work. And the scary thing here, and I can talk from being on the worker side, because I've never been an executive. I never wanted to be. I just thought they were fake kind of people. Um, on the worker side, you know, we're told when management comes, don't say anything. Don't, other than say, hi, how are you doing? If they ask if everything's good, you just say yes. And when you do speak up, you get reprimanded. I know this because I've seen it. Mm -hmm. And so this is a struggle. Like I remember um, we had a fire in, in, in one of the areas of the store because we kept on going saying, hey, this is a problem. The workers need a shelf it would, to put their pizza boxes on. They keep using the, the oven. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a fire. This blew it off. It's not important. They can just figure out how to put the boxes somewhere else. So they did have a fire. And so when the director dragged me into the office to say like your health and safety, how did this happen? I said, because we reported it continuously to management and they blew it off. You know, uh, I'd be talk, trying to talk to the person. He'd be like, oh, I have an important phone call right now. I can't talk to you. That's, so what I'm, I'm wanting to get here is just let's cut the BS. Let's cut the BS and, and figure out like, how do we as safety professionals really take the time to get involved with employees with authenticity and being genuine? Like what kind of activities can people be doing? I'm really hoping oh, sure. on you guys too. No, absolutely. So l let's talk about that real quick. From a daily standpoint, you do have frontline supervision, right? Frontline supervision owns safety not the safety department, right? They own safety, right? With the workers, this is how we do work. And I will give you feedback when I see it not being done safely. That's how it should be done. So those conditions, those behaviors, those system interactions, right? Should be discussed 
a lot daily, right? So when you have somebody, even we call them, so those are in-line supervision, right? They're directly supervising. Anybody who's not in line, to me, should not be coming in and looking at conditions and behaviors, right? They, they are not part of the work, right? Uh, sure, if you want another set of eyes to go do that to supplement, knock yourself out. But to me, they should be coming in and having those, those genuine conversations. Tell me about the work that you're doing. And again, Jim, Jim pointed out, right? Don't interrupt the work. Don't get in, you know, to make it unsafe or anything like that, right? Get the permission and then talk to them as a human being and saying, what's the work that you're doing? What are you doing to keep safe, right? Is it adequate? Are the, are the provisions we have in place, the procedures, the policies, the, the PPE, the whatever controls that we have in place, are they going to keep you safe? And if not, what can we do to make it better? Those conversations, those open-ended conversations to get, understand where the worker's coming from. And again, if you can't have that um, genuine conversation without threatening the employee, uh, if you do have threatening of employees, if you do have the, hey, I'm on the phone, I don't have time to talk safety with you, then you don't have a culture that's going to support any of the suggestions that we're talking about, period. So... Jim, you want to, I know you got tons to add on that. Safety professionals that really like a challenge should look for command and control organizations to. Oh, absolutely. I guess there's more Delta there where you can actually do some good, but boy, what a tough grind uh, that is. I was more fortunate when I did field work in inline. I had a more enlightened uh, management structure, not totally enlightened, but certainly not a what you would think of as classic uh, command and control. Uh, <clears throat> but safety people really need to do, uh, mostly I have struggled over the years with trying to get my managers to go out and build these relationships, understand they're responsible for the work. They are responsible for the safety of the work. They're responsible for the quality of the work. Uh, they're responsible for getting the work sold and making a profit. It's all theirs. And so I want them out there building these relationships. I want the organization to have a relationship with its people. Having said that, safety people, in order to make reasonably intelligent recommendations and need to have their finger on the pulse, and there's only one way to do that, and that's get out with the workers, look at the work. I mean, there's other things we have to do, too. But yeah, I think it's, it's equally important for safety folks to do that. They just need to understand it's not their responsibility to change all the workers and make them safe. And because first of all, that ain't going to happen. There isn't any staff person, safety people. We don't pay these employees. We don't promote these employees. We don't hire or fire these employees. Line management does all that. And that's who workers listen to. Now, they'll listen to the safety person, too, but you really want the organization to change the culture. Safety people can't do that, but they can help if they understand what reality is like uh, in the workplace, and I think they have an obligation to do that in order to give the best advice they can to the people who truly are responsible uh, to make things better. And it's not black and white either, Tamara. It's... uh we're really what we're asking part of it is when you go out and you say hey they you know these are the things i saw these are the recommendations that i have 
But what we, I think we need to shift the conversation that said, especially from a safety standpoint, is look, all I'm I'm a, basically somebody who's an outside. I'm a resource for you for the management, the frontline management. And what I should be challenging you with is, hey, based on the patterns that I'm seeing, right, these weak signals, right, these things that these latent errors that could crop up and hurt us, whether it's safety or quality or productivity, what have you. Um, I'm going to bring these to you and I'm going to give you some evidence, right? That says, these are the times that I'm seeing it based on these patterns. I think if it continues, this is what could happen. And what you should really be doing is just going to management and saying, look, here's the risk. Are we willing to accept this risk or is there something we should do to intervene before that risk, you know, materializes and we get penalized, you know, either financially or, or by somebody getting hurt or what have you. And that, to me, is the conversation we really should be steering people to, is to kind of force these risk uh, tolerance type of questions. Um, because we can't go in this bubble that thinks, you know, there's uh, we can go to zero harm and get zero risk. That's just surprisingly obtuse, in my opinion, right? You're not. You have fallible humans working in a fallible environment. Uh, we can't accept or we can't expect perfection, right? But what I can do is I can control the risks to the best of my ability, right? So that we can get the best outputs with the minimal, you know, impacts, right? And that to me should be the conversations that we should be having. Um, and I think that would put the safety people in a better position. I think it would allow the employees to give better feedback, right? Because they, they're basically telling us about the weak signals. Right. And then it allows management to make that risk determination with the employee to say, hey, if we do it this way, right, it may not eliminate the risk, but it might improve our risk. So I think those conversations would be much better served. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think back, um, there was an individual who, who headed up the food safety area for, mm -hmm. for the whole province. So that's the over 150 sites this person was responsible for. And I think it also comes down to leading by example. Sure. When this person came in, he would wear the, the PPE for the food service area that was required, but he would also then start engaging and talking with the employees, just like, hey, you know, I'm just kind of curious, what are you doing? And he would learn from them. Oh, how, how are you doing that? Like, you know, and he would just talk and engage with them. And it, it really kind of changed the whole environment between him and the worker to the point that people actually were really looking forward when he came to the mm -hmm. store because he moved it from just engaging with them on light little conversation when somebody was new to sharing demonstrations about new methods of doing um, a safe food safety in that mm -hmm. area, right? So I think there's also a discussion around how are you building trust and rapport with those that were supposed to be a resource and help facilitate them be doing their job in a safer environment for them. So I wanted to mm -hmm. kind of open that up because I think that's an area both of you are very passionate in. Sure. I know think, this is a sideline. It's not on our script, but. Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking about these discussions and the safety role uh, in them and thinking how one of the things 
that I've done in the past, and I think safety folks could do more of, is take those managers with them. You know, here you've got a safety critical job here. Uh, you want to, let's go Tuesday afternoon or whatever, take a look at it, read the procedures that govern it first, and, and go out and see how all that matches up, talk to the people, get their input on it. And, and I'll just give you a quick example of how that can bear fruit. <laughs> I took a, a, a division director out to see, this is when I was at Los Alamos, and there is a high hazard, I can't even talk about why it's high hazard, <laughs> but there's a lot of radiological exposure potential there. So you had to be very careful about where you stood, when you went in, what you wore, and all those things. And so I got the procedure before I'm going out with my manager and read 66 pages. And every third page or something, there'd be something in here that employees had to do. And maybe 12 pages more. Here's something else hidden in the, in the verbiage, uh, another requirement that people. And I told Dave before I went out, I said, Dave, there is no way in hell your employees are following this procedure. It's too long. It's too cumbersome. Uh, that's my opinion. And I bet him a six-pack of Guinness <laughs> that we would find gross noncompliance with this procedure. And sure enough, we had. And the sad thing is, this procedure and this operation had gone on for years. Mm. And it had never followed this procedure. This procedure was not followable. But no one ever asked the employees about that. They didn't get to give that input. And what we found is they didn't even have the procedure there. They had a cheat sheet, which is known in the nuclear industry as an operator aid. And they have their own set of problems, by the way. So instead of the procedure, they had a cheat sheet. And the things on there were, were good things, but it was very incomplete. And some of it was wrong, even the, but the cheat sheet was frankly better than the procedure. But that's the kind of thing you don't know if you don't go out and look. And one of the things safety people can do is get their managers out there to take a look with them at high hazard uh, operations that they're responsible for. And uh, I'd like to see a lot more of that. I found that to be fun. Maybe some of the managers didn't find it as much fun, but uh, I enjoy it. So uh, I, I, I want to ask you specifically because I have an example I want to share, Jim. When he found that out and found it for that, you said it was gross negligence, but it was certainly strong deviation from the expected procedure, even though it was 66 pages long. Well, I don't think I called it gross negligence. I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I think it was I think they absolutely um, were forced to come up with some kind of work. So it, it was a, how about this? It was a, it was a deviation from the expected gross deviation for sure. Deviation. I'm sorry. You're right. So gross deviation. So how did he react though? When he did see it, did he act? I, I want you to share with me um, how he reacted with regard to now that I know uh, how was the adjustment? Was it a positive adjustment or was it, oh my God, let's fire somebody for, for it? I think it was, it was more positive, uh, except I never got my six pack. <gasps> what? He still <laughs> owes you? Let's that. make a shout out so that he owes, he pays up. So, you know, specifically, I don't remember what they did, but I know what we talked about doing was we need to grossly reform, redo that procedure, and we need to get the people who are doing the work 
to help us make that something they can both use and actually makes the work go better and safer. That's Excellent. what we discussed. I can't tell you for sure that that ever happened. Uh, but, you know, that was the discussion. And that was a proper discussion. Right. So let's assume it did. And the six-pack was just a one-off. So I want to share with you a story. of I spoke with a friend of mine yesterday. Um, and uh, so they were doing some observations. And um, they were doing some work near electrical line. So it was a uh, powered industrial vehicle uh, working near uh, a powered uh, electrical line. Right. So certainly... Uh, there's safety precautions that come into play, right? You don't want to get too close; it'll arc and you know electrocute people. So the it was observed that they were doing it and they were operating too closely, right? And then they they kind of said, okay, we saw the hazard. They looked at the JHA and said we didn't even see it, we didn't even address it, right? So it was a this is a learning opportunity, right? And uh, one of the, and the way they had it set up was they had some notifications that went out uh, through this observation program to, so let people know that it happened, right? So that we can start to talk about it. Um, so the interesting thing was one of the higher level managers went crazy and he said, I can't believe we're putting this on paper, right? If somebody sees this, we're going to, you know, uh, get totally, um, you know, OSHA's going to come crawling down our necks and uh, give us fines. They're going to, you know, we're going to end up shutting down this company because this kind of information is being put on paper and getting out there. So I kind of wanted to talk to you. It's similar to what you just shared, except instead of expecting it and setting them up to know that, hey, I expect this deviation, right? It was introduced by, you know, their staff out in the field that was sharing the information that, hey, we thought we were doing it this way. Come to find out that we're not planning as well as we expect. How can we make it better? Which is what the expectation of the person who filled it out was. I'm sharing with you so that we can make sure that we correct it. And it's not a repeat thing, right? We're not doing it repeatedly, which uh, it may or may not have been a repeat occurrence, right? But in speaking with the, you know, afterwards and speaking with some of the field people, they're like, yeah, we, we've done that before. Right. We, you know, dodged a bullet. But so by nothing having happened, it wasn't really brought up to higher level management. So I kind of want to talk to you with. Uh, to me, sharing that kind of information and getting it up the food chain, uh, how we react matters tremendously. Uh, and if we don't, if we react as let's shoot the messenger, it will all go underground like you your story earlier, which is. Hey, when management comes in, tell them nothing's wrong, right? Tell them, you know, don't engage with them. Just say everything's hunky-dory. And when they leave, we'll just handle stuff, you know, in our own little huddle. Um, so how we react matters to me tr very tremendously. I'll give you a good story, right? Um, uh, there was, uh, had another company that had those notifications for very high level, very serious, you know, deviations or what have you. Um, and it used to be just local. And then they said, hey, we should share this with more people within the company. And all of a sudden, they added these people external to the, to the work site, right? And all of a sudden, this went out that, hey, this serious thing happened. And that poor person, that superintendent who put it in, had like 20 phone calls. Oh, my God, what's going on? I can't believe this is happening. And word got out that oh my goodness, if you ever put anything in, right, everybody and their brother is going to come breathing down your neck. 
So they they reduced the number of high level incident you know reports tremendously, but it wasn't because they were actually controlling them. It was because word got out that if you put in something like that, uh, uh, remember what you talked about earlier, uh, uh, Tamara was um, you're going to get reprimanded for it. That's exactly what this company did. In uh, another organization, on the flip side, they when they reported it, their CEO his feedback loop was he would call that person, hey, Jim, hey, thank you for finding that. Thank you for saving a life. So the ones that went out, the CEO would actually reach out. That was his task to reach out and reinforce that with the person who submitted it. Hey, that's a great job. I'm glad you brought it to our attention. We're going to make sure that this gets addressed. And I want to thank you personally for you know being brave enough to report it. So you can see the difference between that culture of uh, wanting to hear about it so we can improve it. And I don't want to know about it. I'm too busy managing, you know, to deal with that kind of stuff. So I, I want to make sure that we talked about that, how you react. And, and, and your story was excellent uh, compared to the one I just shared of the differences between the two. So getting those conversations is step one but how we react when we find things that we don't expect or don't want are two completely different things. And I think it goes back to what you were talking about. We kind of did a loop here about the humble learning model. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yes. I can share with you. Thank you from upper management to those working hard. That goes like wildfire across the mm -hmm. store. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't believe who actually came up and said thank you to me today because we mm -hmm. did have a um, director that happened to move into the area and would come and shop at a particular store and when they mm -hmm. saw things that were done on point and really well they actually made a point of coming up to the worker and saying hey i just noticed that that was awesome and then mm -hmm. it was all over the store that oh did you know who and so and so was here and i got a compliment so back to the humble uh, learning model. Let's break that out again because I think it's so important. Yeah. yeah I, a, go ahead, Jim. You have to have an organization that accepts that learning. And, uh, yeah. and, and that's a cultural issue. And it, it, that takes a while to develop. That's kind of a whole nother, we could have a whole nother discussion <laughs> uh, on that. But you have to be willing to accept bad news. In organizations I worked uh, with, a commercial nuclear power plant, you know, the bad news, we were regulated by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So if we found something bad, they're going to see it too. So there, there's a lot of pressure then not to find anything bad. But I think we did a good job of doing that. And I, I think actually the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, probably the best government agency I've worked with uh, over the years was pretty good about making sure they didn't drive that underground by overreacting and giving us a chance to fix them as well. Uh, Los Alamos was a similar situation and we, I was a constant battle. My, my first job there was I managed the uh, Environmental Health Safety Oversight Group. There was about 12 of us and plus contractors would bring in to do special assessments. And the Department of Energy was always wanting my raw notes and, uh, you know, what did you, what did you find? And, you know, a lot of the times we would, um, further investigation, the problem would go away. 
you know, when we check the documents and talk to some other people, not a problem anymore. We really didn't want those unverified problems getting into regulators' hands because, frankly, they didn't always deal with them very well. Unlike the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, I thought that was an issue uh, at Los Alamos. Speaking of which, um, the OSHA had tried to do to implement the I2P2, which is the Injury and Illness Prevention Program, which was really the framework to promote uh, leading indicators and you know to do a lot of the activities around the creation of safety, not measuring the absence of injuries. Um, and it was really shot down because of the how people felt OSHA would react to basically you building a case, they come in, see all your notes, and then use it as a citation against you for, hey, you willingly knew this was going on, you still put people in harm's way, then I'm going to make it a willful instead of a serious. So people were scared of OSHA promoting that leading indicator program because they felt they were going to use it against them, right? And the FAA for a long time, uh, when you looked at near misses for a pilot, if it, you, could use, you could lose your license if you reported too many near misses or if you reported a near miss they didn't like, you could use, lose your license as a pilot. So how many people willingly, right, submitted a near miss as a pilot knowing that you could potentially lose your license. Yeah. So they changed, they changed their program around to say, hey, it, we need to know about these things so we can learn from them uh, so that we can avoid uh, you know, incidents as opposed to, hey, let's you know, shoot the messenger when these things happen potentially. So. Good. I hope a bunch of regulators are listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> because really, I mean, what regulators do can be highly counterproductive. And they need to keep that in mind. And I've seen it work. It can work. Regulators can be good regulators uh, and be careful about these things. But it's very important that they are. Uh, same thing true, you know, in-house. You find problems and, you know, the boss is going to get upset. And so that gets driven underbound. The bosses need to understand that bad news, all news is good news if it's true news. Yes. Good, bad, or indifferent because it's all about learning. And if you're not willing to learn, uh, you're gonna have a dysfunctional organization. Um, amen, brother. Absolutely. Now we are almost to the end of our time together. Um, but I think that, you know, I'd love to hear some closing remarks from you both, as well as adding, um, how can the safety professional bring in more positive, um, positive um, reinforcement to the workers because we talk so much about problems and I think that that's very fatiguing for employees. So I mm -hmm. think there needs to be a balance also. Sure. Uh, I'll take point on this. So uh, let's kind of talk about it. We talked about the, the, the humble model, right? Which is um, uh, you can't shoot the messenger. You have to react well to, to the bad news. Um, and you have to go in collaboratively to say, hey, I want to do safety with you, not to you, right? Um, uh, you have to encourage, right, despite what they bring to you, right, you have to encourage them uh, to, to bring that news to you. So the, and then deal with it uh, as a team, right, to say, hey, I'm glad you brought it to me. Uh, I, I don't want it to be this way, right? If it is this way, then what can we do to make it 
a change. And I think that'll go a long way, both for safety professionals and for, for managers. Uh, as far as, I mean, there's a lot of positives, right? And to me, um, the, the employee engagement uh, is a cornerstone for all safety management systems that I've seen. And I do believe in it, in it and there's tons of documentation that say it's very effective. Uh, but true engagement, and, and I, I think 30%, Jim, is high, to be honest with you, from what I've seen. Because most employee engagement happens at like a committee level, right, or something along those lines. And that's a very small fraction of a large workforce. So uh, anything from these, these conversations that you have with managers uh, to the reporting of voluntary reporting of hazards and uh, things like that, these are all things that you can do on a daily basis to get virtually the entire workforce engaged right, to the learning teams of, hey, when we see these patterns repeatedly, let's get the workers, let's get the managers in on a learning team to figure out what can we do differently to make it better, right, and take out one problem at a time and build those learning teams or committees or I used to, there were tiger teams. I've heard a bunch of different names for those. Uh, Hop specifically has a learning team kind of process uh, that's um, kind of making its rounds. So uh, there are a lot of ways to get that engagement. And, and safety folks can be a tremendous resource without doing all the work, right? We gobbled up all the activities to say, if I do them, then you can't get rid of me as a safety person. What we really should be doing is paving the way to make every worker a good observer and a good person in feedback, to make managers uh, good at feedback and to making those risk assessments right, and risk determinations, right, that's what a safety person should be doing, is making it, those feedback loops viable, right, and productive, uh, and empirical, meaning evidence-based, um, uh, both from a leading standpoint and a lagging standpoint. Uh, that, to me, there's a lot of things that can be done uh, for safety um, uh, for managers and for workers, that's very positive. Sure, we poke some holes in things that we typically see, but that's only so that they can go build something that is very viable. And it's not complicated, right? Or it shouldn't be complicated. It's, can I have a good relationship with you so that you share with me, I react well when we work on it together to make an improvement, right? That, to me, is the fundamental piece of what we've been talking about for an hour, okay? Yeah. Amen. Uh, there's a lot of things that I think safety people generally do real well that they could use to sure. help foster this engaged relationship building uh, organizations. Uh, they train well. Uh, training is part of just about every safety staff's job and they need to train uh, managers how to do observations and how to interact with their employees. They need to train the employees to look for issues and how to report them and so forth. And they can put the management systems together, just getting feedback, you gotta manage that feedback. You know, I know management's kind of a bad word now. We, we all want leadership, but management's so boring. But you have to get it both. manage those things. And you talked about those feedback loops have to be managed so they're effective. Mm -hmm. uh, you can set up systems where your managers, as a part of their normal interactions together talk about what they found in the field you know and if they go hubba hubba we i haven't been in the field well that 
we have to, the system needs to punish that behavior, uh, management behavior, and, and replace it with more proactive and meaningful ways to uh, get a more collaborative organization because you won't get the results that are possible. You will not maximize your results unless you do that. And safety people with training and developing systems to handle corrective actions, developing systems that where managers communicate to each other about these things and deal with these things. Uh, that's where I think uh, safety people can uh, add the most value. Absolutely, yes. Well, thank you. That was an amazing conversation. I really appreciate the two of you coming out and chatting today. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that edition of Safety Talks. It's a great conversation with Carrie and Jim that we just had. Have you registered yet for our Safety Connect virtual conference expo happening this October 2020? If not, head on over to industryconnectsafety.com and you can register there. Are you looking for more health and safety resources? Head on over to safepedia.com. You can find the show notes for this podcast as well as webinars, Q&As, articles, and so much more. Until next time, stay safe.